Well, welcome everybody to Theology on Tap with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza and Pastor Josh Scott. Um, my name is Nathaniel and I will be moderating today, just present to ask follow-up questions, field your questions and submit them to our guests. Um, the first thing you should know is that this is a BYOB event. So bring your own beverage. It can be anything that is on tap. If it's water, that's great. If it's some form of wine, that's great. Anything, literally anything. Um, I am drinking an Aldi brand lemonade with a really small amount of diffused vodka in it. Um, and that's great. <laughs> you are welcome to participate in whatever way you want. Um, if you have questions throughout this experience, feel free to leave them in the comments on Facebook and we will um, surface those. So thanks for joining us today. And uh, if you have any issues also, let me know in the comments, I'll be around. So I wanna introduce our guests here, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, pronouns they, them, theirs, is a trans queer activist, a Latinx scholar, and a public theologian doing some incredible work. They're also the founder of the Activist Theology Project and the author of Activist Theology, a personal favorite of mine. Um, and they also have a new podcast, I believe it's called the Activist Theology Podcast. Is that right? Yeah. Cool beans. Um, and then our second guest, Pastor Josh Scott, pronouns he, him, his, is the lead pastor of Grace Point here in Nashville, also my boss. And uh, he's been here at Grace Point since the spring of 2019, Easter, I believe. So delighted that you're here, Josh. What are I the know. two of you uh, drinking this evening? Dr. Robin? Well, I am, so bourbon is like a thing that I love and I kind of feel like I'm a bourbon snob. And so I'm drinking Old Forester bourbon with a few dashes of orange bitters and a splash of green chartreuse. It's my twist on the old fashioned. So I avoid the simple syrup and I just use the green chartreuse for the sweetener. What about you, Josh? Well, that's, I just, I knew we would be, we were fast friends, but it's because of the bourbon, because we're both kind of bourbon snobs. Tonight, I am drinking uh, Knob Creek. Opened it just for tonight. It's been in my cabinet for a bit. And um, I will tell you, I'm a snob too, but I discovered last week that there's an $8 bottle of very old Barton that is very okay. Oh. Like, nothing to write home about. But it, it's better than some stuff I've had. So if you see yeah. that out there, it's pretty good. Barton. Yeah, very old Barton. Yeah. I don't know if there's like a newer, very young Barton and they're in competition with each other. Right. But. <laughs> right. Cool. So here we are. So I, I had this idea to do a theology on tap because when I was in seminary in the early 2000s, theology on tap around Chicago at Chicago bars was a thing that was very popular um, among Catholics. And it's since become popular with Episcopals, uh, Lutherans, Anglicans, and other folks. But it was a, a, an initially, uh, in the 80s, a Catholic initiative to help folks get to know their faith. And I thought it would be fun to do a theology on tap about community and how do we build community during a global pandemic? And how do we think about this theologically? And not just imagine what community could be, but really how do we think theologically about community? 
So I reached out to one of my best friends, Josh Scott, and I was like, hey, why don't we do this together for the Grace Point community, which is really worldwide. And so probably there are people watching from all over. And how can we help people connect the dots to think theologically about community? So I went to um, a, a, a theologian who I think was, was not only pivotal, pivotal um, for the theological canon, but what, someone who is, um, I think, important in these times, and that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in Life Together, which is a book about community, um, about discipleship, about how do we be with one another. Um, Bonhoeffer says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. And I thought that that was a would be a great point of departure for us to think theologically in this time when we have to practice physical distancing. How do we love one another to create community? So that's sort of where I am tonight and want to think with you, Josh, how do we build the kind of community we long to have, especially in these moments? You know, Robin, when you read that, the first thing that popped in my brain was that is not what they prepare pastors to do in seminary or secondary education. Um, you know, loving people into community. We're, we're taught a lot of strategies and a lot of tips and tricks and all that kind of stuff to do in yeah. ministry. Uh, and I think it's very easy for the whole, especially religious community, to end up being exactly what we don't want, right? Which is, I have a vision of community and I'm, I want that to be the thing it is, as opposed right. to letting it letting it happen. And um, yeah, that just, you know, when you sent that to me earlier today, that, that really floored me. Yeah. So it's interesting that, um, so we've both been to graduate school to get our degrees so that we could be credentialed in the world, but we're really facing a time in this global pandemic and, and a new, really a new world where the the theory that we've learned the books that we've read is not really helping to do the thing that we need to do which is to build a life together right and so so what do we do how do we how do we build this thing who do we look to to build it what tools do we have within us What's our ethic? You know, I have, I'm thinking all these things at the same time. You know, this pandemic has really altered and shifted my understanding of community, just in the sense that I was sort of one of those, you know, yeah, you can get good information online, but if you really want to have the experience, you need to be in a room with other human beings. And I, I still value so deeply and, and miss being in a room with other human beings so much, right? I mean, it's still a vital part for me. Sure. But what I have discovered throughout this process is that community um, actually, in various forms, even virtually, community can actually be a real and meaningful thing that we're building. And I, because you brought up that, you know, our community is kind of bigger than just Nashville. And I just jotted down some names that, of folks who I've met over the last couple of months who, if we hadn't been forced to go online, 
um, and, and get good at producing and putting up gatherings online really quick, we wouldn't have had these folks in our lives. I'm talking about Corey in Pennsylvania, who's here tonight, Irene in Argentina, Chris and Emily in the Czech Republic, Glenn and Carolyn in Illinois. And I'm today on my Tuesday at two video, I met Judy from Texas. People who I'm beginning to know and feel a kinship with yeah. that would not have been possible because I had a previous understanding of what community was and what authentic real community was. And it's just totally exploded that, that yeah. theory of community for me. Which is a good thing, right? Because in many ways, I mean, since before 2016, but 2016 being the pivot point for us to really come together in solidarity to, to dismantle a kind of culture that is toxic and death bringing. Um, but really we are in that moment still of needing to band together, if you will. And I'm just remembering that Sunday was the international day against homophobia, transphobia, biphobia. And I wonder if we can take some lessons from how we've learned to love LGBTQ plus people and superimpose it on our conversation tonight on learning how to love one another in this moment. Yeah, I mean, this moment entered into an already fraught period in our history, right? I mean, we're, uh, you're right, from 20, really 2015, uh, when that presidential 2016 campaign launched, I mean, the, the community bonds between so many folks were fractured. Um, you know, at the time, the, the church I was leading in Kentucky, we lost more people because of things I said on the internet regarding Donald Trump than we did when we moved toward LGBTQ plus inclusion or, you know, and including women in all areas of leadership, right? Like it was, that was such a, a divisive, pivotal moment. Um, and so now on top of all that's happened in our country and culture in the last, you know, four or five years, we now have this pandemic, which also in some ways has sort of sparred some division on people who think we should just open right up and go back to normal and people who are saying, no, we need to be more cautious and the, the, the loving your neighbor thing to do is to wear a mask. And, you know, so it's, it's interesting that we are also that in times like this, we're seeing new forms of community begin and actually thrive. And I, I would use that language about what we've been able to do online. We're, we're thriving with that, but also new divisions that can tend to threaten that communal sense as well. Yeah, you know, the, there is a, there's a threat of togetherness. Like when, mm. when people come together, you know, we always hear there's more power in numbers. And when we come together, whether it's in numbers in person or in numbers online, there is a kind of threat to the status quo that says you're at home, you stay at home, disconnect, don't participate. But really the vision for community in a global pandemic is to reconnect and to find the thread of connection. I know that the Activist Theology Project Every Monday has been hosting coffee hour and folks from all over the country join 
on Sundays, we do an embodiment practice that Aaron Law leads. People from all over the country join. And it's kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of been the, the missing threads that people, you know, pe people are so hungry for belonging. And finally, people have a chance to come together. And so, you know, thinking theologically, how do we do life together as community when everything, I mean, it requires technology, it requires a shift, it requires a pivot, but how do we do this that, that leads with an ethic of love? Because that's something else that they don't teach us in graduate school. Right. They don't teach us the ethic of love. They don't right. teach us to be with one another. But really, right now, the, the call for, for those of us who are situated um, as pastors or, or public theologians, the task for us is to actually be with one another. Yep. And there are a couple of things you said that just immediately had me uh, going all sorts of different places, because I think the thing, the realization is that you can be in the same room, but being in the same room doesn't equal community. Right. It, it just means you're all standing in the same geographic location. Right. Um, and when you mentioned the threat of togetherness, I think one of the examples of that and the way even online with inability to go March, but um, when the Ahmad Arbery uh, information came out that he had been murdered and that the perpetrators had not been arrested. Um, when the online community found that out and people began making noise about it, something happened. Uh, and that was, I think for me, it was realizing, oh my gosh, that, that collective, um, collective angst, collective desire for justice, even virtually, can actually make mountains move. If, yes. if we get enough voices and if we're committed and if we're if we're really in it. So, you know, I, I think that there is a threat to that, whether you're getting together in person and going on a march or whether you get people together online and say, let's all post about this. Let's all sign this petition. Let's all do this thing. Let's let people know that we are aware and we're not going to stand for this injustice. And it actually makes things happen. Yeah. I, I do think one issue we have right now that I would be interested in your take on is because that when we're in a situation like this, where we're virtually connected, there is sort of an accessibility uh, issue with that, right? Not everybody has access to the technology. And, and so I think there are some things to think about, especially in a, in a faith community, um, thinking about it theologically, how do we make sure that we're able to connect with people? Well, yeah, and someone, I, I have a practice of responding to everyone who follows me on Twitter. You follow me on Twitter, I send, I, I send a message to you, I send a tweet back. And one of the persons who recently followed me, I sent a tweet back and invited them to coffee hour and invited them to listen to the podcast. And we had an exchange going on and it comes to find out they have a particular ability that makes Zoom impossible for them. And so this is exposing our highly ableist orientation. And how do we actually dismantle some of those structures that will continue to exclude people? I mean, I'm asking myself the same question. I mean, I, I, you know, this person said to me, you know, Twitter is so much easier. And I was like, great, feel free to chime in. I will respond. So, 
you know, I'm just trying to be nimble right now and, and supple as I think about building community and community is going to look different. It's going to, for some of us, it's going to look like hosting these things where people can come together and, and have a moment to dialogue with us. But for others with different abilities, it's going to be an email. It's going to be a phone call. It's going to be a tweet. Um, and then for others, it's, it's going to be, we're going to have to reach out and help those who are losing themselves right now and imagine what pastoral care looks like and what community care looks like in a global pandemic, which is all about connecting heart and feelings and mind together and being as integrated and whole as we can be. Yeah, I love that, that what you said, we need to be nimble. I love that. And I think that we've sort of romanticized the early Christian uh, movement uh, thinking that they had all these final forms and doctrines and dogmas when really they were building the plane while they were flying it. Um, and I feel like that's sort of where we are right now, right? We're building the plane while we're flying it. Um, and example of that is when we, the week we went virtual, we were beginning a new series. It was a series I was very excited about. We did a few weeks of it and felt like the response was good, but I was hearing from people that they really would like to, to, for, for us to address some of the things that were going on right now. And we just immediately stopped the series we were doing and we, Nathaniel came up with a great idea and we worked together and we were able to, to sort of shift to meet the needs of our community. Yeah. And I think that that is a very small, um, but it's sort of the microcosm and the macrocosm, which is thinking through how to make sure everybody has a way to express what they need and then having the creativity and the agility to begin to bring that into existence so, so that nobody in the community feels like they've been alienated during whether they live in Nashville or whether they live, you know, somewhere in South America, right? Right. And one of the one of the key components of community is naming our needs and listening to one another. That if we are community together, then we are bound together in this connection to make a better world, create a better church, you know, whatever it is. But if we don't have a way to easily share our needs, then the, the wovenness that we've created are, is broken on some level. Yep. And just making sure people feel seen. Yeah. Especially when we're not literally seeing them. Uh, right. outside of outside of a, a call like this you know we we do a lot of our stuff online like you know in, the, in zoom chat rooms now um th does that show that i'm a little out of touch is this called a chat room is that the, <laughs> i don't know we do a lot of things on here so making sure people uh, can let us know what they need making sure that we're ready to respond i think is is really really crucial and um you know i would wonder when you think about community robin who are some people whether they're known well-known or unknown that have helped you in this process of thinking about it theologically? I think about um, Walter Brueggemann and his prophetic imagination. Yeah. Um, that is more timely right now than ever. We need a prophetic imagination to learn how to be with one another right now. 
course, I think of Bonhoeffer and and um, fighting against Hitler and what I would call supremacy culture. We we need people like that to help us connect the dots and and dismantle an empire that is causing so much death. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think of. Um, I think of Martin Luther King Jr. who worked tirelessly for a beloved community and a community not just that has it all together, but a community that actually knows how to be together. That that something that is grounded and based in relationship, which I think if 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 anything the prophetic imagination right now is how do we be more relational with one another so that we can so that we can be bound up with each other i think that we have to let go of some of the um stereotypical preconceived ideas of what community looks like yeah right where community looks like everybody's smiling and happy and sort of plastic and when the reality is community will always be messy 100% of the time it will always be messy I was thinking back to in the book of Exodus when it describes the group of people who left Egypt during the Exodus, the, the Hebrew phrase is Erav Rav, and it essentially means like a ragtag group of people, not just one, but people who came together and had different languages in some ways and had different customs and cultures, and they kind of melded together. And, and of course, if you read the stories in the Hebrew scriptures, they were, weren't a community that had it all together. They were they were very much figuring it out. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think about now. Like we have to be open to the messiness of relationship because relationship yeah. was always messy. And when we try to hide, you know, when we try to hide the fact that we all have stuff going on or we try to appear strong and, and you know, that, that ultimately works against the community um, because true community requires a certain kind of vulnerability. Absolutely. Willingness to lean in. Yeah. Who, who are the people that you look to theologians or not, who are like icons of yours when you think about community? You know, I'll tell you, one of the people I always think about is um, Brian McLaren. And the reason I think about Brian is not only does he teach so well and write so well on this, but and I, I'm, I, and I'm sure you know him and have been with him. Yeah. When you're in his presence, there is a, a, a sense of belonging that just, the first time you're around him, he exudes that kind of he sees you, he's with you, there's, a pre- there's just something about that. And there's so many of the people you listed. But one of the places I also go back is to the, to the Hebrew prophets. Because I think that, you know, you talked about ableism earlier, and there are so many things, you know, I have so many blind spots, it's not funny. <laughs> and, and so being, engaging in, you know, the Hebrew prophets, uh, even, of course, Jesus, uh, who were calling us to focus on, there are areas of injustice that are being perpetuated. Yeah. And I think when we begin to, you know, when, when, um, when Amos goes on his, his rant <laughs> about get away with your songs, I'm like, justice roll like a river. I think that that, that for me, um, reading the prophets jars me into, wow, I, I wouldn't be the people the prophet was comforting here. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it causes me to think about the way I exist in community with other people and whether or not I'm bringing those sorts of blind spots with me that are actually, even though I I wouldn't intend them to are actually bring harm and inflicting pain. And so that has been 
the Hebrew prophets, of course, I never read those when I was right. They, they didn't tell you, they didn't tell us about the prophets growing right. up because it was dangerous. Right. <laughs> but those, the prophets have jarred me and shook me up in so many wonderful ways that, um, I, I would, I would recommend go read them. If you've yeah. never read the prophets, go dig in. You know, as I hear you say that, um, I think about Jesus and his misfit disciples. And, you know, the stories that we have collected make it seem all clean and put together. But I can imagine that it was it was hard and and they were also fighting the empire. And so there were they they were pressed in on all different sides, kind of like we are now. Um, And I wonder, you know, one of the things that I love to do is have people over and cook for them. And since we can't do that right now, how do we celebrate togetherness in this two-dimensional way, in a way that actually creates conditions for flourishing? And I think that this is an example of how we do that, of doing things like a theology on tap. Um, how do we build bridges so that there are inroads to connection? I think this is an example of doing that. I agree. And gosh, the the disciples of Jesus are such an example, right? Because you have fishermen and then you have the tax collectors who have been exploiting them. You have Jesus, the nonviolent Messiah, and you have zealots who are just ready they're freedom fighters ready to start killing romans right and jesus this is the group he puts together right <laughs> right. right it's like was there not an entrance exam was there not a questionnaire right. <laughs> like where do you right. this is not how i put together a group of people to launch a movement right and it's almost like it's almost like that the very dna of the early disciple community was if this is going to happen and if the kingdom experience is going to spread in the world it's going to have to happen not amongst the group of people in an echo chamber it's going to have to happen in the most diverse, challenging. It's going to have to be a community of people who don't have a lot in common sometimes, except for the desire for the world to be better. That's right. That's and right. Um, man, I, you know, that is to me such, such a counterintuitive way to build your movement, which is put people in the room who normally, if they were in a bar together, they'd be throwing punches. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and th- th- I mean, this is the example and the invitation to do community in a pandemic. How, 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 do, we, how do we create folds of that kind of connection? Right. That's, that's the work that I know that we're both about and I know that we've been trying to do that as best as we can. Um, I'm wondering if it makes sense to see if there are any questions right now. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, we actually just got a really good one that um, from Timothy, who's on Facebook. Um, they asked, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm phrasing it a little bit differently, but so even as we physically distance, what, what might be your advice for engaging in community when there's a lot of past hurt or harm with that, like the church, for example? Hmm. What, what might be a way of engaging with that in a constructive way that puts some of that the harm behind. Mm. Well, it's always important to hold institutions accountable. And 
the church is certainly not innocent. You know, I always make the comparison, um, and if I can talk politics for a minute, um, the GOP and Republicans, there's no justice with them right now. But the Democrats are not innocent. The, the same is true for the church. The church is not innocent. And the church needs to be accountable. The institution needs to be a, a, held accountable for the ways that it has perpetuated harm against people. And I think the way, the best way we can do that is in community and learning to listen and love one another, but being able to name our truest truths. Mm -hmm. And that's hard work. And that, that takes a leadership and that takes a community that is willing to be in relationship with one another and not just exchange transactions of conversation. Preach. Amen. I'm right there with you. And I also think that it's also a time to say that clarity is reasonable. And what happens in the church world so often, and I grew up, you know, I, I, I pastored a church for a very long time. It was non-denominational, but was really Southern Baptist undercover, right? So I, I know what churches are trying to do, but what they're ultimately doing is bait and switching people. And they're saying, everybody's welcome here, regardless of who you love or regardless of your gender identity or regardless of what your politics are or regardless of what your particular interpretations are of the Bible. But what ends up happening is people come in and they start asking questions or they start saying, how, how far into this thing am I allowed to participate? Right. And then the happens and that's where the pain comes from. So I think clarity is reasonable. I think churches, I think religious leaders, I think pastors, public theologians, whoever is in any sort of um, position of they're being looked at as a, as a leader in the religious cir uh, circles, they, they need to be able to say where they stand and what they ultimately, who they include and who they exclude. Um, because I think it, there's been so much damage inflicted by people trying to um, preserve their, you know, their incomes, preserve their institution, and also try to reach out to people. Um, and I, I'll just throw out church clarity. Um, a friend of mine, George McHale, was a big a part of starting that. And they're, they're just saying clarity is reasonable. Where you stand on inclusion of LGBTQ plus folks matters. And you should say, say where you are. What women are allowed or not allowed to do in your community matters. And you should be honest about that on the front end. So I think asking churches, hey, here's who I am and here's what it matters to me. And I want to know where, what is the boundary? It's almost like when uh, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts and he talks to him about the Jesus story that in the Ethiopian eunuch at the end points to a body of water and he says, there's water. What is preventing me from being baptized? Mm -hmm. Well, in Philip's previous lens, the fact that he was a eunuch right. <laughs> kept him from being baptized. It's a question, how far into this thing can I go? Am I always going to be on the peripheral or am I going to be able to press into the center and actually have a piece of this and have belonging in this and my voice will help shape this? And so I think that, I think that asking for clarity is reasonable. And if you don't know church clarity, uh, is it .com.org? I don't know what it is. Search church clarity and you, you can search where you live and you can search churches in your community. And if the church you're thinking about isn't scored on church clarity, you can request it. Um, because the, the time has come for, for clarity. And That's I'm right. so glad that that exists. That's right. Uh, another, those are both great answers. Thank you. Another really fantastic question from Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Um, 
you mentioned this is the time when the church needs to sit in the mess with people. So how might it look to sit in the mess with someone right now? Mm. Yeah, you know, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, you know, I'm just thinking that, um, I'm thinking about loss and grief. And I'm thinking how messy loss and grief is in general. And to think about loss and grief in this moment of a global pandemic where I can't go and be with people who have lost someone from COVID-19. I can't provide in-person pastoral care. Um, so I, I've had to imagine how do I be with people in the mess of life? And for, for some people, it has been me texting them every day. And I think this is where being nimble and supple comes up. How do we pivot to, to participate in the messiness of life? If we can't be together, in person, how do we create togetherness on a phone call, through an email, through FaceTime? And, and not that technology will save us, but thank God for technology so that we can see one another and be with one another right now. Yep. I think, Robin, one of the hardest things for me as a pastor has been talking to people in my community who have gone through something. And my normal approach would have been, I'll come by to visit, let's meet for coffee, let's do it. And, and now we're doing that from a distance. Um, I think one of the ways I hope people experienced was our gathering at Grace Point this week. We leaned into learning to lament. And part of that was listening to people who were sharing either something they'd created or something that inspired them in this conversation of lament and actually making space for grief. And so, you know, because I think that one of the another disservice the church has done is it's it's sort of said if you have something that's painful and difficult and you can't just trust God through it and move on that there's something broken in you and your faith when the reality is human beings need to grieve when we experience pain and loss and disappointment when when everything falls apart for us the right thing to do is not just put a smile on and keep going the right thing to do is to lament and lamenting is naming this is the loss. This is the grief. This is the place it touched. This is what it took for me. This is what it hurt. And it's giving, giving words or <laughs> groan, whatever it is yeah. to express that. And I, I think the church has, oh, you know, and I, look, I've been a part of that where we've just tried to move on to happier things. I, one of the things I shared Sundays, I'm in Enneagram 7. Let's just go to the good stuff. <laughs> Yeah. But what ends up happening is you have a lot of baggage and you have a lot of things you've never grieved. And there'll be moments in your life when you'll just sit weeping and you have no idea why. And it's something that happened back there. That it finally caught up with you and said, no, I insist that you mourn this in the right way. So I, I think the church, one of the ways we do that is we, we, we don't try to put a happy spin on everything and we sit in the grief with people. And we, we help them find ways as they need it to express that. And that whatever that expression is, um, no matter how many, how much profanity it's laced with, we call that sacred, mm -hmm. um, because our laments are sacred. 
uh, and it's a it's a it's a central part of what it means to be human and to be a healthy whole human we have to make space for that you know i think about the day after good friday and the day before easter sunday sitting in the unknown of whether resurrection will come there's been a lot of holy saturday moments during this global pandemic and some of those holy saturday moments have been lamenting and grieving what what is and if we can learn to i don't want to say be comfortable in holy saturday or those holy saturday moments but learn to lean into the uncertainty i think that we can harness compassion compassion for self and compassion for other and that combination will shift the energy in the world. Yep. And I think that is a, such an important thing to point out, compassion for self and compassion for others. I think that when we lack compassion for other people, it is probably grounded in the fact that we have none for ourselves. Right. And so I, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people or read people say, you know, uh, during this pandemic, I should be, and, you know, listing all the things they should be accomplishing, right? I've been, <laughs> I've been cleaning out my t-shirt drawer how long have we been doing this now? Like three, two, three months. I've been yeah. cleaning out my t-shirt door for two or three months and one day it's going to happen. And I just decided, you know what? I'm not going to shoot myself about the t-shirt drawer. It'll happen. I'll get to it. Um, I have, I have a lot of children and <laughs> we have a lot going on. Yeah. If I don't get that t-shirt drawer cleaned out, it's going to be fine. So I think giving ourselves some grace and saying, look, all the ways we could guilt and shame ourselves for what we think other people are accomplishing. They're probably not and what we're not accomplishing that's not that's not how this works yeah we we have to be compassionate to ourselves because then that will overflow in compassion for other people it's why i think jesus rightly said to love your neighbor as yourself which is a quote from leviticus right in the tradition you love your love your neighbor as you would love yourself and if you if we struggle to be kind to ourselves we will surely struggle to be kind to our neighbors yeah yeah now you're preaching uh, you can't give a preacher a microphone at all, can you? <laughs> we have another great question from Jeff. Um, and he says, I think one unfortunate outcome of physical distancing is that those on the margins have an even harder time finding a platform. So how do we resist centering community around the few and push outward to encompass the many? Mm -hmm. You know, my first thought is you give, them, you give people the microphone. Yeah. Right. You, you invite them to share what's going on with them, whether that's in a conversation like this or part of a gathering or online gathering or whatever. I, I think you, you have to make sure. And again, I think that for us, you know, Nathaniel, one of the things that happened for us is we started hearing what our people were saying. Um, and so the voice from our community was let's shift, let's alter our plan right now and let's, let's really lean into how we're feeling and what we're thinking and how we're experiencing this. So I think finding creative ways to let people, to give people the, the space to, to say, to share, to speak, whatever that looks like. Um, I think that's essential. I always think that um, divesting from privilege is a thing that we should all be doing. I'm a white passing Latinx. My mother is brown and not from this country. My father was white, but I move in the world with power, access, and privilege. I also have a PhD. I'm also masculine of center. Um, 
I have access. And so every chance I get, I pass the mic. Every chance I get to do an Instagram live with someone who just wants to be in conversation, I do it. Um, and it's about sharing my platform. It's about widening the circle and widening it even further so that we're all together. For me, this isn't about um, ego or collecting followers or growing my audience. This is about the work. Um, it's why I moved back home to the South and ground my work in the American South because we need to shift culture here too. And we should always be sharing our platforms. And it's a practice that I've had for several years of doing that. Robin, that is 1 million percent true of you. Um, you're, you're inspiring in the way that you do that for the people around you. Thank you. Thank you both for those answers. Um, something that I wrote down, because it crossed my mind, um, what role might or can the observance of or participation in sacraments um, play in our physically distant community gatherings of any kind? How might we reinterpret them, practice them? What, what might that look like? Yeah, you know, I come from a low church background. Um, and so um, sacraments for me are, they can be done anytime, all the time. But, but I, I, I understand your question and the importance of how do we have ritual in a way that marks um, sacred time or, or how do we build that sacred container? Um, I mean, I love the thing that Josh did around communion a couple weeks ago. You know, um, I think that we need, we, I mean, listen, if we are not unhinging from, and I'm going to use some big words here, the heteropatriarchal capitalist machine and slowing down and resting, then we are just perpetuating the bullshit that is, that is creating more of this pandemic, you know? So I think slowing down and finding what are, what is our sacred time? What is our ritual? What are the sacraments that we want to celebrate? Is it communion? I mean, one of the things I miss greatly is celebrating communion at Grace Point. It's, it's a beautiful time of a shared common meal that I get to have with everyone. Um, that's a great question. How do we celebrate the sacramental life? Um, but let's re also remember that sacrament you know, the invisible grace is present with our visible community, whether it is in person or online. So let's remember that sacrament is one of those things that, while intangible, is very tangible in our togetherness and is very much part of community. Woo, that is good stuff, my goodness. <laughs> So, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we did Books and Brews with Diana Butler Bass. Yeah. And Diana was talking about, I think, it was, is it the Episcopal Church who has sort of put a hold on communion and vir virtual communion is not allowed. People have been trying to do it and get in trouble for it. Yeah. And the thing that that reminds, and I saw some, some chatter on Twitter about that again today. The thing that that reminds me of is that when you think about sacraments, there are things that should bring us together. Right? I mean, Eucharist 
we gather for a common meal. Yeah. Baptism, we gather around symbolically the River Jordan, right? <laughs> like we're at these experiences. They're also used as weapons mm -hmm. to exclude so much and so often in Christian history. So I think that um, just as a practical, whether you're in person or online, the minute you start putting up fences to keep people away from a sacrament, you have has ceased to be sacred. Mm -hmm. what, makes it sac what makes it sacred is the access, right? So when somebody's arguing about whether or not immersion or sprinkling is appropriate, you have it has ceased to be a sacrament. Right. And now it is a, it is a weapon of your rightness or wrongness. And, com and, and communities have been torn apart around this very issue of sprinkling versus dunking. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's a real, and, and how do you practice communion? Do you put them in those things and pass them around or you do intinction? Is there something else we haven't thought of yet? Right. When the reality was that the early, I mean, I think what got, I think one of the things that got Jesus killed was the fact that he was taking a temple activity and bringing it to an ordinary house, which is you go to a temple, you make a sacrifice, you eat, usually for most sacrifices, you would feast in the temple with family and friends and with the God you were feasting with. And Jesus actually starts having these feasts at ordinary tables. I think the Eucharist, which began as a common meal, which Dom, John Donald Crossan called open commensality, Jesus', Jesus uh, position of eating with anyone and everyone. I think that was the radical nature. I think that's what got part of what got him in trouble. And my goodness, we've completely messed that up. So maybe if our celebration of Eucharist isn't pissing someone off who thinks that there should be people excluded, we're not, we're not going far enough. Right, that's right. Right. I think the, right. the point of Eucharist is that it is, if you are a human being who wants to see other human beings excluded, Eucharist will make you uncomfortable and that's okay. And I love the idea of a couple of weeks ago, um, my partner and I, we celebrated Shabbat with her family because they're Jewish. Mm. And there was something really special about lighting the candle they sang the blessing, they read the scripture. And even though it was mediated by technology, there was something sacred about that. And it felt like sacrament. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if we're not leaning in to every possible imaginative fold mm -hmm. of sacrament in this moment, then, then we, are, we are actually making sacrament an idol. Yep. And that's bad theology. Right. And that's not a theology that's going to build community. Right. You know, there's a Beekner quote I, I used recently when one of the last times we were in person at Grace Point, but he, he talks through, you know, being at a high school graduation or while, wherever you are. And then he says, if we weren't blind as bats, we would see that all of life is sacramental. Yeah. So if, if that is the truth, if, if we live, move, and exist in God, right, which is my favorite way of describing what, what the reality of God is, we live, move, and exist in God, then we shouldn't be surprised. Um, I, mean, I have been surprised at times. I had, a, I had an experience of deep connection with everybody around me at Walmart once, mm. which doesn't seem like it should be possible. But I had just had this sense where I looked around, I was like, every one of these human beings are, are image bearers of God, and they're deeply loved, and they're beloved, and we're all a part of this. Why, why do we hate each other? Why do we fight with each other? Like, there's something about that. And what, what a sacrament should do is not create the sacred, but make us aware that it's already 
sacred that everything yeah. is and everywhere is and everyone is if we're willing to see it i love how you threw in some augusta in there that's great um i a couple weeks ago maybe a month ago my partner invited me to when i get up put my feet on the ground and and feel and to me that was an invitation to sacrament mm. yep. to to embody what is first thing in the morning you know jews breath is is the presence of god and so what happens when we wake up put our feet on the ground take a breath and imagine that moment of sacrament mm -hmm. yeah i love that that could be a whole hour conversation I'd be, <laughs> yeah. um dr robin this is a question a little bit geared towards you you've talked a lot in your writing and in your work about um embodiment and the, like how essential that is to to our ourselves our communities what that looks like and i'm really curious if you have any observations or thoughts on what that that meaning of embodiment how, how that kind of applies in the situation as we physically distance as we experience some form of you know relative isolation what, what does that look like for you yeah it's a good question because how do we live in an embodied life when we can't be around anyone it just so happens that i'm my next book is on becoming embodied and i think embodiment is a vision for democracy that if we can learn to have relationship with ourselves, we can learn to have a relationship with other people and that will shift our democracy but how do we do that when we are basically all at home and I would say that this is an incubation time for us to create a, a whole, and I, I mean W-H-O-L-E whole, and holy, H-O-L-Y, relationship with ourself. Mm. And that when we do that inner work, we change the world. And that has happened online that happens on phone calls that happens on zoom calls and and that will manifest when we are able to be back in person with one another that when we invest in ourselves and do the work of changing ourselves we will ultimately change the world but we have to first do the inner work of ourselves and that inner work of embodiment is holy and sacred work and it's some of the hardest work that i've ever done josh did you want to speak to that at all that was fantastic <laughs> I, I i would that is beautiful so well said and i yeah i think there's there's a line um there's a line in an eagle song that talks about we're sheep without a shepherd we don't know how to be alone I think what that's getting at is we don't know how to be with ourselves. We don't know how to be with ourselves. And, and ultimately being with someone else or someone else's in a room, being in community, um, what we bring to that is us. And so how do we do that if we don't know ourselves? So yeah, beautiful. I don't have any additional submitted questions, but is there anything that 
either of you might still want to cover? Any ideas, any percolating thoughts? Well, I think, I think, you know, Josh and I have been talking about how do we do more work together and, you know, we're wondering if something like this would be valuable for the community, um, like a monthly theology on tap. And I think we'd love to know that. So if people could comment or send a message wherever they're sending messages, um, we'd love to know if this is helpful for you to connect the dots right now. Yeah, this has been, I mean, from my perspective, this has been so much fun. And if nobody else wants to experience it, Dr. Robin and I can just do this <laughs> together right. every so often. But I, I really would be interested if it is something that has been helpful um, and people would like to engage in. I would even be interested in what people might want to hear us theology on tap about um, as we've sort of launched into this. So if, if you are in the camp of, we would love for you all to offer this maybe once a month, send us some ideas of, I mean, we, we've obviously got stuff if you don't, but I you know, want to be able to scratch the itch and make sure yeah. we're going to share what people need. Um, I've had a, I've had a great time tonight and it's not just the bourbon, like the conversation. Right. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's been really great. Enjoyed, really enjoyed this. And, and the idea is when we can be together, would, would you want us to do this live in person? Because that's something else that we've kind of talked about. Yeah. On location somewhere. Yeah. A good time would be had by all. It would be so much fun. I love that. We, we did just have a couple more roll in. Do we want to call it a night or do we want to get to those? Leave it up yeah, let's, let's give it space. I mean, we've got five minutes. Cool. Yeah. Uh, first question comes from Carla. Um, during all of this, I struggle with trying to reconcile keeping myself and my family safe and being Christ-like, uh, possibly putting my health at risk by helping those in need. Any guidance for how we might um, engage in that, that tension or frame of reference. Yeah, this is a hard one, right? Like, how do you, I mean, I've, I've really struggled with um, folks who are in need. How do we, how do we make sure that all the needs are met, right? Um, while remaining safe. And this is where I would say, your gut is your best form of wisdom and um, do the best to protect yourself and whatever the task is at hand, um, be safe. Um, but we should not, I think, close ourselves off to helping people. We should um, consider the public health crisis we should um, we should also know that to be Christ-like is to follow the guidelines and and to um, monitor one's safety and the safety of the family. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Robin. And I would say, I, I think guilt. Whenever we feel or feeling guilty, um, that can that can often lead us to maybe make decisions we wouldn't otherwise make or so here's what i would say i would say there are people right now who have been working this entire time in hospitals and in doctor's offices and as first responders who have put their health and ultimately the health of their loved ones at risk every single day 
And I, I don't think we can show them enough gratitude for what they've done. Um, I also think that, I, I think you're exactly right. I think we should be about making sure people are cared for and taken care of. I think following guidelines is important. Um, and so figuring out what systems are in place to do this safely. Um, how do we work through organizations that are already in existence who are doing this? Like, how do we support Open Table Nashville? Right. Right, who, are, who already are doing this much smaller crew now than they had out before, of course. But there, so I, I think figuring out how we can, my, my gut is all, what I always think about anyway, is like, let's just reinvent the entire wheel. When there are actually things in place um, that we can begin to partner with. So I would begin there. Um, and I think be as safe as humanly possible. Um, yeah, it's, that's, that's part of the tension of this time. Yeah. Is, I mean, I think one of the things about Jesus was that he wasn't afraid to walk up to somebody with a contagious skin disease and reach out and embrace them. Um, how do we do that socially? Um, that's a challenge right now. So I don't have an exact answer other than I think you have to be safe. I think you have to take care of your family. And I think we have to find ways to make sure that the most vulnerable and marginal among us are taken care of. Great, thank you both. Um, one last question that I feel like kind of is a good landing point um, from Jeff. How might we bypass divisions and conventional theological or political debates to engage a better collective online slash social media force? Yes, yes, that's, <laughs> yes, sign me up for that. That's what I wanna be doing. <laughs> right, yeah, I think Jeff should tell us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, does Jeff have some ideas? I mean, I mean, I feel like, I feel like, um, come November, we're going to be voting either by mail or at the ballot box and we're going to have to choose the better of two evils. No apologies from me. I, I don't think the Democrats are salvation. Um, they're not innocent. Um, but we really have to, um, figure out how do we vote our faith and how do we vote our conscience and how do we vote in a way that brings people into the larger fold of community um, rather than marginalizing? I mean, I, I think the logic of inclusion demands the logic of exclusion. When we include, we are fundamentally excluding other people. And so how do we actually build a community that can hold all of our complexities? Um, I, you know, um, I think that's the work of the Activist Theology Project. We're trying to build a better world through social healing. Um, and I think it starts locally at home with our own selves and, um, and in relationship. Yeah, you know, I now have decided I rarely, I rarely will now end up in a massive controversial debate on Facebook. Um, it's, it's just because in my experience, nobody changes their mind there. Um, and nobody's gonna change their mind when you're yelling at them. Right. right, it's what I wish the street preachers would learn. Like you've stayed up all, as Taylor Swift said, you stayed up all night making that sign and you're yelling at people and nobody's gonna change their mind because of you. Like, right. so I think that finding a way, and that's the tension for me is finding a way to stand for something, right? And I think the Hebrew prophets do that, right? They stand for something. Injustice isn't welcome here. If we're going to welcome marginalized communities, then 
we have to say, you know, if, if we want to welcome, if we want to say, like, I think we have to say that white supremacy is, is wrong and it's evil and it has no place, right? Right. So th you're right. There is an exclusion to inclusion. When you are becoming more expansive, it can be uncomfortable for people who aren't expansive, who maybe are shrinking. So I think we have to find ways to engage in those conversations that aren't vitriolic. Um, I have an increasing worry about a left-leaning liberal fundamentalism that has better theology and the exact same tactics right. as right-wing fundamentalism. Um, so I, I think finding ways to be engaged in conversation with people who are different than us, who believe different, think different, vote different is very important. I think being able to make sure we say for us, this is a justice issue, right? We'll, and we'll engage with you, but we're not going to just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, we can't really ever stand for anything because that hurts somebody's feeling. No, we, we're going to stand for issues of justice. We're, we're going to, we're going to flood the internet when somebody's murdered and when a black man on a jog is murdered in broad daylight. We're going to do that. And we're going to do that unapologetically, but we're going to do it differently in the sense that um, our desire for justice is not retribution. And I think that's where we get in trouble. Our desire for justice has to be restoration, has to be restorative justice. And what does that look like? And I, I just, our society is not ready for that yet. Like we're not in a place where, the, I think when we talk about justice, people immediately think about how do we make them pay? Yeah. As opposed to how do we make them, how do we invite them into a different way of being human? Well, and you know, Josh, I think that the other thing that happens along the left is the left is using the same logic as the right. And that is harm, that is harming. I, I remember being in Charlottesville and the white clergy had spent weeks and months organizing, but decided that they were going to use the same logic around land that the neo-Nazis were using. And this was all about the General Lee statue. And, you know, I thought to myself, the same logic cannot be used if we are trying to build the beloved community. This is where I go back to a prophetic imagination. We need to prophetically imagine what can be and then do it. And we have that time right now. Yeah, you know, I always go back to the story of Samson where he did something, the Philistines did something back. And then there's this line where Samson said, well, since you've done this, now I can take all, I can just go all out and take revenge on you. And he, he gets like 300 foxes, ties them tail to tail with a torch and sends them into their fields, which essentially wrecks their economy. And just that logic of, well, since you've done this, now I'm free to nuke you. Right. Well, that, that ultimately isn't going to change the world. Right. What are we in this for? Are we in this for human transformation that transforms the planet? Are we in this to convince people that we're right? That's right. That was great. That was another hour long conversation just waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both so much for having this. Thank you. And thanks yeah. to those who are watching live and on the webinar. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you, Nathaniel, you've been incredible. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you.
Of course, thank you. I finished my drink. I feel like that's a good metric of time. <laughs> Cheers. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, thank you everyone for joining us and for being present today and asking some really fantastic questions. It was really fun to, to read those. Um, if you are interested in some more theological discussion, join us um, Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. We have Reconstruct where it's a whole bunch of people having some fun, chatting. You know, you can bring another beverage. It's for you. Uh, so join us Wednesdays if you're interested. We have a bunch of stuff going on, gracepoint.net slash calendar. And make sure you're subscribed to our email for updates about events like this. And so maybe this will happen again next month. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you both, Josh and Dr. Robin. It was so good to be with you today. Thank, thank you, you everyone else for joining us. Hope you have a great night. All the love. Peace.